This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin. And today I'm joined by Sam Jeske, Senior Fellow here at Millennial Politics, and Jamie Hodge, Director of Vera Institute's Reshaping Prosecution Program. Jamie, it's great to have you on today. Thank you so much for coming. No, thank you so much for having me. Very excited for the conversation. So you have a very impressive background. You hold a JD from Duke, Uh, You're a former assistant U.S. attorney. You spent some time in Obama's Department of Justice and even some time working for the Vice President Joe Biden. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about your journey, what inspired you to pursue law originally, and how you became the director of the Vera Institute's Reshaping Prosecution Program? Sure. Um, So I'm actually the first in my family to to go to college, to go to law school. Um, And so when I sort of look back on, um, as you name kind of some of the opportunities I have, I can't help but feel incredibly blessed. Um, So I um, had at a very young age had sort of parents and family members say, um, you should think about being a lawyer, although I'd never seen one before other on other than on TV. Um, and I really think it was because I like to read as a child and they just wanted to give me something to shoot for. But um, when I finished high school, I had an opportunity to shadow a lawyer um, who was an alumni to our high school. And that is what convinced me that absolutely this was what I wanted to do. Um, and I remember from that very early experience, at the time I had no idea what I wanted to do with a law degree other than to to this vague notion of help people, wasn't sure what that meant. Um, but he, during this sort of internship where I had an opportunity to shadow, he made sure that I had an opportunity to see lots of different lawyers in different roles. And so I spent a few days with a judge. I spent a few days with a public defender, a few days with a prosecutor. He had a solo practice and did like mediation and civil work. And so I got to see these different things. And I remember even from that sort of literally just out of high school being impressed by the power that prosecutors had um, just from that very early experience um, and recognizing that I felt like it, that just watching the public defender I shadowed that so much of her answers and responses to her client was, well, I have to wait on the prosecutor to get the discovery. I have to wait on the prosecutor to find out what the plea offer is. Well, I don't know that either. I've got to talk to the prosecutor. And it just that really stuck out to me, like, who is this prosecutor that seems to control everything? And little did I know, I never thought um, at that time that I would actually be one one day. Um, But it was uh, a mentor I did. When I finished law school, I went to a firm um, just because that's where the bulk of graduates out of Duke go. And I still didn't know what I was supposed to do with this degree. Um, But after a few years, I really felt like I needed to do something more meaningful. And I had a mentor who suggested the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I I remember my first thought thinking, do you know I'm from Detroit? Like, we don't, you know, (laughs) Um, (laughs) not not the kind of job I would have thought. But um, 
but he, you know, said to me, like, look, I think you should talk to some folks who work there because it's this isn't just about locking people up. And prosecutors have a lot of control. There are things, you know, I, I didn't know about problem solving courts and things like diversion and that there were these other responses other than incarceration that prosecutors had access to. And so that was really what led me to the job. And then I just had some experiences in my personal life um, in, you know, having a father who um, just the year, the year before I left high school was the victim of a tragic um, arm, uh, a tragic, tragic robbery that left him with a severe closed head injury. Um, and then having a brother who has battled substance use disorder for much of adulthood. And because of that, having contact with the system. So I had these very, um, you know, uh, sort of stark personal experiences on both extremes, seeing the harm um, that crime can cause, because it didn't just impact my father. I mean, it changed the rest of all of our lives. Um, but then also seeing how the system um, causes harm and we bring people into the system who really, you know, like the, the system never helped my brother, the, those responses never treated the issue, they just caused more pain, you know, giving him convictions, um, you know, make, having him have a harder access to things like education and jobs, um, and not ever really getting to the root of the problem. So if, I, having that perspective, I think, made me really want to have this role as a prosecutor with eyes open and to understand that the system was broken and that, you know, I wanted to be a person in that position of power who could, you know, bring a different viewpoint, a different approach. But I will tell you, in the two and a half years that I've been away from the system and have been in this role at Vera, I've had an opportunity to really learn a lot. And, um, and now I'm firmly of the opinion that the system isn't broken, but that it's actually um, operating just as intended, and that that requires a very different approach in terms of how we address the problems and the harm the system is causing. So you mentioned the power that prosecutors hold, and I think that there's a, a bit of a misunderstanding truly about what the role and the job of a prosecutor is or the power that they hold. And I think back to the presidential primaries for the Democrats, there were you know, a lot of uh, chatter on Twitter, especially how Kamala Harris is a cop and Amy Klobuchar as a prosecutor put people away. But it sounds like from your perspective, perhaps they, they could have done more to be more lenient or to change the system that they were working in. Um, they had more options than meets the eye. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. I mean, yes, I'd say yes and no. The yes part is that um, pro prosecutors are not police officers, and it is not a prosecutor's job to just rubber stamp every arrest that police bring in. Like, it, there's a real discretion um, in a separate role they play in terms of assessing the arrest, but then also they are the gatekeepers to make the decision, is this something that should be brought into this system? 
is the response that the system offers the right response for this situation? And that's where they can take a very different approach. They can really stop system involvement at that point of charging. Um, I do think part of what is wrong with our system fundamentally is that there aren't very many options. So um, even as I described, you know, my early learning of the U.S. Attorney's Office, like, oh, okay, there are these diversion programs and problem-solving courts. I'll be frank, like those options weren't available pretty much once you got past misdemeanor, like low-level cases. The more serious the cases became, the more the only option on the table was some type of incarceration, you know. Um, and so the way our system is is sort of built and structured promotes a very punitive response. It is not about accountability. It's not about repair or restoration. And so a lot of what I think is exciting to me about this time right now is that the calls from protesters and so many people who are demanding something different from our system is that we need a we need a fundamentally different response and we need to increase the options options that are really outside of the system um, that right now pretty much points towards punishment. So, you know, I do think, yes, prosecutors and, and all those who have been in this role have power and they have discretion and there are ways you can wield it for good or for bad. But I also think no matter, you can have the best of intentions because I this is, I feel like was my own experience. I came in with the best of, ex, best of intentions, but ultimately I became a cog in the wheel of a very broken system. And so I have personally had to really reckon with the harm I've caused, the number of Black men who still today are sitting in prison because that was my, that was what I did. I prosecuted the case. I took the only sort of option that was available, which was incarceration. Um, so there's, you know, a real um, that's why I say yes and no. You know, there, there's power, but that power is still within a fundamentally um, harmful system. That's a really eye-opening perspective. Thank you for that. Um, and so transitioning to your current role as the director of the Vera Institute's Reshaping Prosecution Program, can you tell our audience a little bit about what your department does and what they work towards? Yeah, sure. Um, so our program, which isn't, you know, Vera's been around forever. Vera's nearly 60 years old and is a criminal justice nonprofit that's known for using data to drive change. Um, but within Vera, our program, Reshaping Prosecution, is fairly new. Um, we were launched in 2017 and really in response to this movement where communities are demanding something different from their lead prosecutors and their prosecutor's office. And since 2015, we've seen um, community activists, and advocates organize and elect prosecutors who've run on platforms of change. And those platforms have included ending mass incarceration, they've included addressing racial disparities, and they've also included being more transparent and accountable to the communities where they're serving. But you can imagine it's one thing to run a campaign to get elected on that platform. And it's another thing to take over a traditional law and order office and expect to see different outcomes. And so Vera launched this, launched our program really in response to that need, that we can come in after someone has been elected on a platform of change. We can use data and our policy work to basically help first through help the office understand the problem. So we use data. I have researchers on my team that where we look at the electronic case management system for the office and we do qualitative interviews of staff. We're actually piloting a site now where 
Um, our qualitative work will include community members because it's more than just what the office does that promotes, you know, sort of racial disparities and um, this um, it, the the over-reliance on incarceration is fundamentally the result of other broken systems like education and healthcare. So we've recognized that we need to get just, we can't um, solely limit the data that we're gathering to the office, but that we need to um, speak to those who've been most impacted by the office and the system. Um, but then based on that data analysis, we, we look at that data with an eye towards two things. How are the decisions prosecutors are making driving incarceration and how are they exacerbating racial disparities? And then based on that data, we help the lead prosecutor craft new policies um, so that with, again, those goals of combating those two issues. And then importantly, we train and engage with all of the line staff in the office around implementation. And I say importantly because I worked under five different U.S. attorneys during my time as an AUSA and um, very little changed. You know, our letterhead would change, but fundamentally the job that we did every day going into court didn't change that much. Um, and so there was a recognition to me that if we actually wanna see different outcomes by those folks who are carrying the caseloads, going to court every day, we have to interact with them. It has to be more than just a memo that's sent out. We have to get their buy-in, help them understand because I, I never had the opportunity as a line prosecutor to understand what mass incarceration meant. They weren't words that were even used in my office. I was told to do justice in my particular case, do justice in that case. But doing that, I had no idea how I was contributing to this national crisis where doing justice in each case um, was done without the context of our broader systemic injustice of the system. And so um, being able to help prosecutors learn and understand um, what, you know, is happening at the system level, um, and then to understand how our system even started, like the historical foundation that the racial disparities we see aren't just because, well, Black people commit more crime, but that when we actually can understand the very foundations of our system and how it was created, Created and really built up to control those who'd been formerly enslaved um, through black codes and vagrancy laws and, and all the ways, even if we look at the 13th Amendment, um, that, you know, it abolished slavery except as punishment for crime, and it's, which is why Brian Stevenson is so spot on when he says slavery didn't end, it evolved. So being able to have those kind of conversations with line prosecutors to understand the context and the history of the system within which they're working to motivate them and then help them buy into this new vision, because clearly their community has has demanded something different, has elected someone on a different platform, but they need to be part of that if we expect to see different outcomes at the end of the day. What's up, everybody? We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and let you know that Millennial Politics is now on Spotify, Stitcher, the Google App Store, and iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the show and like hearing from previous guests, such as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, and many more, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. High ratings and good reviews are some of the best ways people can find us. And if you want to see us continue doing this work, we hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. All right, 
Now back to the show. So let's talk about your latest initiative at the Avira Institute, um, the Motion for Justice. So what is the purpose of this program and can you tell us about the success that it has had so far? Sure. So I'm really excited about Motion for Justice. Um, when I named those sort of three things that um, prosecutors are running on and winning on and really the three goals of our program, so ending mass incarceration, addressing racial disparities, and then helping prosecutors be more transparent and accountable. What we found in the pilot phase of our work is that, you know, through data, through our training of staff, writing new policies, we got, we could see decarceration in the data. We were also able to help prosecutors release more data, create data dashboards, create, you know, release reports, engage more with their community. So we felt like we could see some success on that third goal of accountability and transparency. But what persisted were racial disparities. And that was in spite of the fact that we centered racial justice from the very beginning, not only in our goals and our trainings and how we interacted with the office and line staff, but yet this problem persisted. And and it's it's consistent. We've seen similar decarceration efforts in New York and New Jersey, where we've seen great decarceration, but where when we look at racial disparities, they either persist or sometimes they even increase. And so we launched Motion for Justice, um, and, and this was a little more than a year ago. Um, I actually went to um, Lucy Lang at the Institute for Innovation and Prosecution at John Jay. They have a long history of bringing together experts to create something implementable for prosecutors' offices. And I said to her, look, I have this idea. Um, We really need to um, zero in. If we're ever going to address racial disparities, we have to create something by bringing together racial justice scholars who've been writing and thinking on these issues for decades with the lead prosecutors, with those who've been impacted by the system, with our advocates and activists, and we all need to get in a room together for a period of time, and we need to create something that addresses this. And so we worked together, and we brought together Angela Jordan Davis, you know, amazing writer and professor on prosecution and racial justice, Jeff Robinson at the ACLU. We had, um, you know, just a number of folks at the table about 20 in total, a little over 20 in total, um, who went through a six-month process with us to basically re-envision the role of the prosecutor in ways that would require something radically different. Um, And that required, again, a real education and understanding of our history, a real need to Um, seed power, you know, to recognize that we have all these resources and power in a system that is ill-equipped to address the problems that are brought to it. And that those problems, especially when we look at how much in our system is poverty-based, based on substance use disorder, based on mental health issues, those problems are all better addressed outside of our system, yet we under-resource those systems and we pour billions of dollars into a carceral system. And so how can prosecutors use their power and influence to call for more investment in the systems that actually work. And then, you know, just a a real understanding that prosecutors don't have the answers, you know, that those who are closest to the problem are always closest to the solution. And so that this role would require real community engagement and partnership um, to re-envision what does a new version of a new vision for justice look like when that when you center racial equity? What do those fundamental values of safety and truth and justice mean when you center racial equity? And that was the journey we went on together. And all of that resulted in motion for justice. And 
So Motion for Justice is really three parts to the initiative. There's a website, motionforjustice.org, that has educational materials. It has action steps, you know, 10 steps that prosecutors can take today um, to center racial equity within each action step. We have a specific racial equity strategy. So how do you target um, those actions that you're taking to the communities who've been most impacted and, and particularly Black communities in this country? And then we also have various um, sort of overarching racial equity strategies, which really call on prosecutors to do some things that are drastically different. Um, there's a video where Jeff Robinson talks about how if we truly want to see a different system, um, if we truly want to center racial equity in it, we have to basically do something that's the opposite of what we've been doing. And so our hope is that this website will provide sort of those first steps to begin to do something at the opposite end of the spectrum. The second component of Motion for Justice is that as Vera, we, we you know, believe in data. So we want to test this. Is this, did we create something that actually works? And so what we're doing is we have three prosecutor's offices where we're piloting this guidance in Suffolk County with Rachel Rollins, in Ramsey County that's led by John Choi, and then in Ingham County in Michigan led by Carol Seaman. And so we'll do a 12 to 18 month engagement with them, um, but really where we're implementing as much of Motion for Justice guidance as we can. And then the final part is a two year strategic communication campaign and technical assistance um, that is to, um, uh, engage other offices beyond our three pilot sites um, for this work. So, um, so those are the three components of the initiative. So I want to dig deeper into the relationship between citizens, the community, elected officials, and line prosecutors as we think of them. So for someone who may not be familiar with kind of the inner workings of the system, what's the best way to think about how an elected official, say a district attorney, interacts with line prosecutors? Is it correct in thinking that by electing progressive district attorneys, someone like a Rachel Rollins, who you just mentioned, that might be one of the most effective and immediate ways to make change in those localities? Yes. I mean, the answer is yes, because if you have a different leader, they can they can change the policy. Um, and I think why so many people have been excited about the prosecution reform movement is because literally through the power of one election, you can drastically change an office as opposed to maybe electing a legislator where they're going to be one vote of many. Um, and so you may not be able to get that immediate change in policy or change in law because they're only one one of many who have input in it. Whereas if you have a lead prosecutor, then, you know, and they've run on a platform and, you know, Rachel's a great example. She issued, you know, her memo to her staff saying, okay, this is, we're going to do business differently now. And here are all the ways we're going to do it differently, including not charging low level offenses that have no business being brought into the criminal legal system. Um, in addition, you know, to policies on how bail is used. And, you know, there are so many areas is that, um, that prosecutors have power over. There's immigration-related consequences that prosecutors that can change policies so that they're not triggering deportation um, by the way that they're charging something. But the, to me, the difference 
or sort of the added value that we bring is, again, it's one thing to have a policy in writing. It's another thing to make sure that all your staff is actually following it. And it's another thing to actually have them bought in in a way where they're motivated to think differently, have a different approach, actually learn about the person accused. You know, I one of the things I share when I talk to folks is, that, you know, I learned the most about the person who was accused in any case I prosecuted right before sentencing. We'd get a pre-sentence report, and that was when I would learn all about the childhood trauma they'd been through, all the failed systems they'd been a part of. And that's after they've already either pled or been convicted at trial, and now we're at sentencing, and that's when I learn all about them. How about we actually ask the questions and learn about the person up front? And then make decisions that actually get at the root of the problem as opposed to just with an eye towards punishment. So you need prosecutors to understand the need to do something different and be bought in. So because it's hard to keep track of what every single prosecutor is doing. So that's why things like court watch are so important because you can have policies, again, on the books. It doesn't mean that everybody's following them. It sounds like common sense, but it it is a radical change from what they've been taught to do, right? Yes, yes. I mean, if you think about it, most prosecutors ran on their conviction rates, you know, so when they stood up to give a stump speech, it's, well, I win 95% of my trials, and I've got, you know, a 45-year sentence in this homicide case, and you run, you know, you, you call a press conference when you can put all the guns on the table that was just seized from a drug and gun bust, you know, so it it the role has always been about tough on crime. Let me show you how hard I've been, how many cases I've won. It's never been people-centered. And so that is, I, I think, again, what is exciting about this movement. You know, there's a real recognition because there, we've been working under this sort of fallacy that, oh, for us to be safe, this is the approach that's required. We have to have this punitive response. That's how we get to safety. Well, data tells us that we incarcerate more than any other place on the planet. And if that's the case, then no one should have to lock their doors here. This should be the safest place on the planet, but we know that's not the case. So clearly, you know, how, how we think of safety or how we achieve safety, it's not working. And in fact, what we really understand when we get to understand the system and see the harm it causes is not only is it not making us safer, but it's actually causing harm in our communities. And so, you know, there's this sort of, you know, really for the first time, um, this real pushback to the status quo and to have prosecutors be the ones saying, no, you know, we should not... um, look at everything through a punitive lens, that we actually need to be more people-centered. We actually need to recognize the harm the system itself is causing is radically different than what prosecutors have traditionally done. So I want to transition to some current events. First, the impact that COVID-19 has had on the criminal justice system. Can you talk a bit about some of the problems this pandemic has created for jails and prisons across the country and what needs to be done to mitigate these negative effects? Sure. Um, I, I just think it's tragic. You know, I 
Um, I literally saw an, uh, a post on Twitter today um, about, you know, someone who's lost a, a dear friend who's incarcerated. Um, and we know the news is clear that um, our jails have become these hot spots where um, we're seeing high rates of not just infection, but now, unfortunately, many deaths. And um, it, to me, just highlights, you know, all the things that we've just been talking about that are wrong with the system and wrong with these punitive approaches are just exactly exacerbated by this global pandemic. And so when we have a system where so many people who are brought into it are not brought into it because they're a true danger, you know, they're brought into it because they don't have money to post bail to get home or because they've been arrested on something very minor that should have really a public health response. And now not only are they brought into the system, but now they risk, they are literally risking their lives being part of the system. So I, you know, the, the, the calls for change that are needed for our system to be radically different to me are just exacerbated by this moment. Um, we're now not just talking about, oh, you're removing people from their communities. We are putting them in a place where we are, people are literally getting a death sentence behind minor crimes because we are putting them in a place where they do not have access to the appropriate health care, where they cannot follow any of the CDC guidelines. But yet we, we had quote unquote, do this in the name of safety. So I think one of the big lessons from um, having to see the tragedy of our response to this global pandemic is how much public health and public safety are interrelated, that they go hand in hand. And in fact, if we actually would take a public health lens to how we approach public safety across the board, not just in a global pandemic, it would take us, it would give us many steps forward in terms towards the type of change we need in our system. So it, it, it's, it's tragic and much more is required of all of us to do something about it. So I'd also like to turn to the racial justice protests, uh, the anti-police brutality protests, the Black Lives Matter protests that have been going on all over the country. It, it seems like every day there's another video of police brutalizing and using force against protesters or recently even snatching them up off the street and throwing them into unmarked vans. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really scary. It, it feels uh, extrajudicial, like it's happening outside of our current system of, of laws. Yeah. Um, what, what power do citizens have? What power do elected officials have to work towards a more just, fair, and peaceful relationship with police departments? Yeah. Um, I think the one thing I, I probably want to start in response is how much of this isn't new, that the only difference is that we now have video cameras everywhere and every cell phone can capture it. Um, but there are, you know, the sort of jumping out and taking people into custody um, is not something new. It's just that we're seeing videos of it. The brutality. And that there's an increased awareness um, among white America too, right? Like yes. my community is, is becoming increasingly aware of police brutality and the danger of, of having an altercation with officers. Yes. In ways that you're right, that you know, I was always raised to be wary of the police, which is why when it was suggested to me to become a prosecutor, my first thought was like, that, that doesn't make sense, you know. <laughs> um, but that's because the experience, you know, of, of just Black communities have seen for generations of what policing means in our communities. And so I think you're right. This is 
kind of a new moment for our country where that understanding is is beyond just black communities and there's this recognition that wow these things are happening and they're not they're not just one-offs they're happening over and over and over um, and I think they're captured over and over and over because every cell phone is a camera these days um, and it, it to me, it means though, I think the deeper recognition means we also have, you know, this opportunity we haven't had before um, and to really lean in for meaningful change. And some of the things that, you know, the protests are calling for are different this time around. It's not just accountability of the police officers. It's not just, you know, we want them arrested and charged. Defund the police in our work and my interpretation is really about defunding the police state. It is not just about individual individual police departments, but it is a carceral system. It is a, an, a, a racialized system that promotes and enables this to keep happening. Because if it was just about a few bad apples, then you would think by the time you arrest and charge that, oh, maybe now we should see some decrease. That's not the case. It's, it is the very fundamental sort of historical founding of this system that was built on violence and oppression of Black people that it, we shouldn't actually be surprised um, that that is still what exists today. And so this opportunity, again, is not about just, you know, let's hold a couple of individual officers accountable, but let's fundamentally um, remake, reimagine our system's response in ways that actually center you know, restoration, repair, center the people who are harmed are really promotes accountability. Those things don't happen in our current systems response. So we've got one last question for you. How can people find you on social media and stay connected with the work you do at the Veer Institute? Oh, thank you. So um, I am new to Twitter and trying to build my Twitter following. <laughs> so you can find me um, at my last name, Hodge underscore my first name, Jamila, J-A-M-I-L-A. Um, please check out the Motion for Justice website. It's motionforjustice.org. If you are interested in anything related to racial justice, we have an amazing resource bank in addition to these action steps and racial equity strategies for prosecutors. Our other intended audience for Motion for Justice are the community members and activists and advocates who are engaged in holding prosecutors accountable. So please check out the website. And then vera.org, you can find Reshaping Prosecution, our program there as well. Jami, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you for the work that you do. I'm really looking forward to, to following your work and uh, seeing how it continues to develop. Thank you so much for the invitation. To our listeners, thank you as always. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or Stitcher. Follow us on social media at Millen Politics. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash And of course, stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks.